0: Major Lindsay in Africa presents Erasing the Stigma, Conversations About Mental Health in the Legal Profession.
1: Well, welcome to episode 37 of Erasing the Stigma, Conversations About Mental Health in the Legal Profession, brought to you by Major Lindsay in Africa. I'm Mark Yacono, your host today, and I'm a member of Major Lindsay's Advisory Services Practice, and I'm thrilled that my 37th guest was also my second guest. Dan Lukasik, who is the Judicial Wellness Coordinator for the New York State court system. Dan is, in my view, a groundbreaking advocate for promoting mental wellness in the legal profession. And he has shared his challenges with depression in an open way to show others that they can come out of the shadows and get the help they need. But much of the conversation we hear around mental health focuses on the needs for proper professional health and self care. But those things in a vacuum can only take you so far in your wellness journey. So today we're going to talk about how the, how caring for and helping others can provide profound restorative benefits for those walking in the wake of depression and can better other people's lives as well. Dan is a, what I would call a LinkedIn guru, and he, he publishes and posts a lot on LinkedIn, but he's been publishing a story for a number of years on a young man named George, who Dan started mentoring and befriending when George was 11 and is now 16. To me, it's a tale about how one person can change a child's life forever and help heal himself while doing so. So Dan, thank you for agreeing to talk to me about you and George.
0: Thanks for having me on, Mark.
1: Dan, take us to the beginning in, in what was the you know sort of conditions proceeding to even coming into contact with George? It's a pretty interesting story about our our hometown Buffalo and some some amazing um, advocates from Buffalo in the poorest section of Buffalo.
0: Yeah, thanks, Mark. And uh, well, uh, I am sixty one now, and uh, was uh, when I was first diagnosed with major depression. Uh, and anxiety, I was 40. And I was the managing partner at our litigation firm. And I was trying cases around the country and very, very involved in that. And uh, things started to go poorly with my mental health over a period of about a year. And I was at one, at some point diagnosed with major depression. And that began a long journey for me, which I'm still walking these 20 years later. And But what happened to me about five years ago was something I can only describe as mysterious, um, fateful, um, just, uh, you know, I'm so fortunate that this happened in my life, but preceding it, immediately preceding it five years ago, I found myself kind of the way I describe it as poor in spirit. Uh, You know, i had been in therapy for a long time, antidepressants for a long time. I actually belong to a depression support group for lawyers, which I started uh, 15 years ago now. And but still, I found something lacking uh, in my life, I felt still kind of empty. I felt like a yearning or a hunger for something more in my life. And, you know, I think That's the human condition, right? Lawyers feel that way, but most human beings feel that way. And I went, uh, there's a place on the east side of Buffalo, which is the poorest uh, section of Buffalo. Buffalo is one of the most segregated cities in America. And the dominant population on the east side is African-American. And there's this special place there called St. Luke's Mission, that I'd never been to before at that time. A friend had told me about it. And it was started about 25 years ago by this amazing woman uh, named Amy Petros, uh, who used to own a, a restaurant here in Buffalo, a famous one called Amy's Place. And 25 years ago, there's this abandoned old Polish church on the East side. Uh, and she had this kind of, faith or important inspiration to start a place for homeless people. So she took this rundown old church 25 years ago and built up St. What is today St. Luke's mission, which uh, serves the homeless population, but also has school attached to it. And it serves about a thousand meals a day. So I, uh, for some mysterious reason, I thought this was the place that I, um, I would find something. And I asked Amy to be paired with a young child uh, who didn't have a father. Uh, I did not have a son. And they matched me with George.
1: Did you do volunteer work at St. Luke's Mission before getting to the point where you asked Amy to connect you with a child that you could help?
0: Yeah, I did. And uh, that itself is kind of interesting. About a year before I met George and asked Amy that question, I was at some lawyer conference and that we were honoring, uh, I think it was for lawyer of the year, uh, a criminal defense lawyer in our community. And he, he was talking about his long-term mentoring and relationship uh, you know, with people at St. Luke's Mission. And he said something very powerful to me. There may be 500 people listening to him. He said, you know, we get all kinds of uh, stuff, you know, at the mission, kind of like Goodwill does. People drop off their clothes or old things that they don't need anymore. Um, but we don't, we don't need more of that. What we really, really need is more people and more people in the sense of people who live in poverty people who have no one people who don't maybe have one or both parents people who don't have a lot of opportunities um we need people to form relationships uh with each other and um Yeah. So a light went off in my head for some reason. I think I was searching for something and I I started volunteering very slowly at St. Luke's mission, uh, maybe once a week in the school and seeing what it was like. And for me, uh, I started attending mass there, um, which was important to me. I guess I'm not a traditional Catholic. I'm pretty much, I guess I would describe myself as a spiritual way left of center Catholic uh, <laughs> you know, priests should marry, uh, gay people should be priests, women should be priests. Uh, but I've always have been attracted to the social justice component of um, the Catholic faith. And um, this struck a powerful chord in me uh, going to the poorest section of Buffalo because, you know, um, in a different way, I was very, very poor. You know, I was very poor in spirit.
1: You know, it's interesting as I, I listen to your journey, having been the product of a Jesuit education, you know, the, um, the work they're doing at St. Luke's and the need for people to give time and be in service of others really traces very far back In Catholic tradition, other religions too, but in in our, you know, Catholic tradition of missionaries and and religious orders, such as the Jesuits and the Franciscans, this is almost a very fundamental way of ministry, right? Uh,
0: And that's exactly uh, how I felt about it. And, um, but what's different, I guess, about the story I tell is that many people over time have said to me, you know, how wonderful you're doing all this stuff for George, how lucky he is. And, you know, I tell them the truth is I didn't really form a relationship with George out of a sense of abundance. You know, I, you know, I'm a lawyer and uh, I have all the the success and that I could, you know, give a a few, uh, uh, you know, uh, gems of wisdom to him it was really something else. I wasn't coming into this relationship from a sense of abundance, but a sense of poverty, um,
1: your own emotional and spiritual poverty.
0: That's exactly correct. And, uh, you know, we often don't talk about that when it comes to depression, the spiritual dimension, and I guess everybody's different, but for me, it always had that component to it. Um, And I I guess I could describe myself as uh, most of my life is kind of a searcher in one way or another and a searcher for greater meaning and purpose in my life. And for some mysterious reason, uh, I heard that place uh, or those people or that spirit at St. Luke's Mission uh, kind of calling me. So I humbly kind of... uh, ended up there. And um, I was introduced to George.
1: Now, the story of you and George wasn't um, a story of instant affection and ease, was it?
0: It's funny. No, it wasn't. So, uh, you know, when I first met George, uh, (laughs) he just kind of looked at me really most of the time. And when we first started going out, you know, I didn't know what to do. Uh, There was no blueprint for any of this. I I didn't have anybody mentoring me about how to mentor. So we're just kind of winging it. But I remember very clearly the first six months or so were particularly rocky in the sense that George and I would go places and he wouldn't talk to me. Uh, He'd sit next to me in the passenger seat and more often than not look out the window or I'd ask him questions and he kind of shrug. or at other times, uh, he would kick me or punch me. Um, you know, but I think looking back on it, uh, he had been so disappointed by a lot of things in life. Uh, he didn't really have a dad or male influence. Uh, he had a stepdad but um, but at the time, he wasn't living with his stepdad or his, his mom. He was part time, but he's also living with his godmother part time. Uh, but the, the closest father relationship he had before me was his father, uh, his grandfather, actually, um, who was a Buffalo fireman. And uh, did a lot with George, but he passed away suddenly when George was five so, from five up to about 10 or 11, he really didn't have anybody. Um, so, in the beginning, he really pushed me away, I think physically, emotionally, and uh, just by his silence, uh, I could feel distrust, anger. And I remember one time driving someplace with him, I think it was to the library and he wouldn't talk to me and i said listen you know listen man you're not going to talk to me you're not going to have a good you know you you're, you're going to be like this i'm going to turn around my car I'll, we'll go right back to your house and i'll drop you off and that's the end of that so he was silent for about a minute and he said no that's okay let's let's keep going um
1: but the, the interesting thing is that you had the the foresight and the intuition to understand that George's behavior wasn't necessarily directed towards you or your actions. And you didn't necessarily focus George's behavior or actions through the prism of your expectations.
0: You know, it's, I think Mark, what I was thinking, my thought at the time was a part of me did think it was the you know right thing to do but another part of me was thinking man this this kind of sucks you know i i'm here and i'm trying to do something helpful to both of us um and is this even going to work out i mean there were parts that first 6 months there were times when i would almost quit uh because i think i thought you know he doesn't like me and you know we're not de- bonding or developing a relationship uh, maybe I should mentor someone else, or maybe I'm not a good mentor.
1: Yeah, that that part of the narrative was fascinating to me, but it, it it struck me as not being all that unusual. When and it's not it's it's different, but it's it's not different when you talk about bringing a lawyer in from the woods, right? Someone who's felt isolated and emotionally beaten and shamed by their condition, and you're bringing them in from the woods, and they're not quite ready to feel comfortable in their skin or tell their story or necessarily embrace the therapeutic context. George was really, you know, a different component of that as he had had a life where he hadn't had a lot of stability in the one male image that he had that was positive was was taken from him at an age where even comprehending loss isn't that easy. It never is easy at any age. So I I was fascinated that what you were experiencing really was challenging, but not atypical. And by staying the course, it allowed George to sort of unwrap in his own time. And the two of you to get to a different place.
0: You know, I think that's dead on. It kind of unfolded and it wasn't so much a linear line from point A to B. But I remember um, maybe three or four months into it, I started seeing little glimmers of hope that to keep going. And I remember every time I would drop George off at home, I started saying to him, I love you. And, uh, he never responded, you know, he just get out of the car, go in the door. And then maybe six months further down the road, maybe we'd known each other a year. I was dropping them off one night. And I said that I love you. And he kind of grumbled. I love you too. I love Yeah. You. And
1: that's, um, that's a heartwarming moment. And that's a breakthrough, um, Maybe sometimes if our own children will
0: say that boy is that true is that true and you know the other part of this um to put it in context about six months after that and i always said that i'd see george twice a week i'd pick him up from school and then uh one time one day a week i'd pick him up take him home the other time i pick him up and we go to dinner or we do things together on the weekends, and. I started saying to him uh, one other uh, phrase, which is, I believe in you a thousand percent. So every time I dropped him off at home now, I said to him, George, I love you and I believe in you a thousand percent.
1: And didn't that start to come out of a process where you asked George how he viewed himself? And he didn't view himself as particularly bright, even though he obviously was.
0: That's exactly correct. He didn't. and Some of this is I, I boy, it's been a learning experience for for me, Mark, and experiencing directly the effects of sy- systematic racism, uh, the, you know, the thoughts that we lay on people of color Um you know, I, you know, I think George, when he was young, um, people told him he wasn't very smart or wasn't very didn't have many prospects for success. He lived in a neighborhood around St. Luke's that was f- filled with crime, prostitution, drugs. Uh, he really didn't have anybody in his inner orbit that he could look to to say there's another way. And as a consequence, I don't think George felt very good about himself.
1: Uh, kind of hard know, to when you grow up in, a, in, in an atmosphere that's, um, you know, perfused with with hopelessness.
0: You know, I think my sense of it to a couple points um, is that George um, had two stable influences in his life. At before I met him. One was his mother, which who was this wonderful, strong, uh big-hearted person. And the second is this woman called Godmom. Godmom, and she's this big Italian woman with a booming voice. And uh her name is Jeannie Monero. And uh she is extremely close to George and his siblings too. And George spent a lot of time with her and uh, the umbrella underneath all that was St. Luke's mission. George saw people around him, Amy Bactros, other people who work for the mission, um, loving other people, being a service to other people. And as I got to know George more, George is a profoundly, deeply good person, an exceptionally big hearted person. Um, And I can tell you a lot of stories about that, but George and I just celebrated his 16th uh, birthday and um, we went out for a steak dinner. And when I gave him his 16th birthday card, I in fact wrote in there, always remember, I love you. And I believe in you a thousand percent. And there's plenty of times I text that to to him throughout.
1: And George is a high school football player at Lancaster High oh, School. Oh, yes. Very high school in Lancaster, right?
0: Yes. And he's a beast. He's uh George is now uh five eight and weighs about two hundred and fifty pounds and can bench press three hundred and ten pounds, which Whoa. is an enormous amount of weight. Wow but he's kind of a, um, big bear, you know, he's kind of a, he's very popular at the school and everyone loves George. Uh, he's got a great sense of humor and he's such a fundamentally decent human being. I I think, um, that people are naturally attracted to George and his personality.
1: Now, when you came into George's life as this mentor from the suburbs, um, how how was um that received by George's family and his sort of immediate orbit?
0: That's a great question. Um I remember vividly uh I, I was introduced to his mother. His mother wanted to make sure that I was okay, you know, I'd be taking her son young son out to dinner, picking him up at the school. And it just so happens the day I met George's mom. George's is, George is the oldest of four. Uh, his mom's name is Georgette, and I met her in the cafeteria of St. Luke's Mission, and and she was sitting with someone else, crying, c- crying quite hard, uh, sobbing because she had just lost her uh, one and a half year old daughter to a heart defect, and oh. was uh, oh, no. really, yeah, it was very, and you know, she her, herself had been through a lot of hard times. But she gathered some strength and calmed down and uh, we began to talk about it, about George. And I said, you know, it's just simple. I just want to take George out and form a friendship. And she agreed to that. But I think many people in the St. Luke's community had seen lots of white people come and go, uh, lots of uh, people from the suburbs. Um, try their hand at mentoring or volunteering or helping and they don't stay long or um, a good example might be kids from wealthier uh, uh, suburbs who go to Catholic school will often have like a fun drive and once a year drop off donations, but that's, that's really nothing like uh, what I was doing. And there aren't, um, there definitely are some great people who do what I do. But I think my, my the man who I originally heard speak about this, who got me involved, you know, I think what he's trying to say, we need more of that because it's in relationships, you know, not necessarily dumping off used clothes, um, though that's important too. but it's in relationships that things change. And um, I know, you know, from my soul that uh, George and I have been changed in a beautiful way. And, you know, and I I have to say, you know that I'm very open with George about my depression and we talk about it. And I have been open with him for a long time.
1: Well, when you share that, because sometimes it's hard for adults to grasp that with empathy, how did he react and, and did it surprise
0: you? What was his reaction?
1: Yeah.
0: Um, I think he didn't understand. Uh, so I tried to put it in the context that, you know, I'd say Mr. Dan feels pretty sad today or I don't, I, I'm just not feeling well, George, because of that. And there were plenty, there were times over our relationship where say I was going to pick him up from school or take him to dinner. And I would call him and say, George, I just can't do it. I, My depression would have me pinned to my chair. I, I had no energy. I um, was not well. But you know, that was more the exception than the rule and it maybe happened a handful of times but lots of times there are times i was pretty depressed uh and i'd say to myself okay um george needs me and he needs me to be a stable force in his life and you know i knew that after i spent time with george Um, sometimes I would feel much better. My depression had lifted or sometimes maybe not emotionally, I would feel better, but I felt like I had done something constructive, you know, being with George. So to
1: some extent during some of those lower moments, which all people with depressive disorder, bipolar disorder have the higher calling to be there for George was, um, a catalyst to keep you from sort of sinking into just black inertia.
0: I think that's true.
1: I, you know, one of the things as I read your story um, that really sort of popped into my mind is when you're wrestling with getting your own mental illness and condition under control is there ever like a right time to engage in a mentoring process or giving, you know, reaching out to help others and 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 do it so that you're you're not reaching out and then find yourself unable to fulfill your commitment? Because you know, you could see a cycle where, you know, someone's in a good positive vibe, they want to do this, then they get hit with a wave of depression. And then they can't. So they've disappointed themselves and disappointed the person they're they're reaching out to, not because it's their fault, but because the disease has taken the reins, so to speak.
0: That's a really great practical question. And I think that it probably would not be something I would suggest to someone with untreated depression or someone who's in a major depressive episode and uh with me, I had been in therapy for a long time. I'd been on antidepressants for a long time. I'd been in a depression support group for a long time. So um, I was managing as best I could my depression. Uh, But with George in the last six years, I never felt like I fell into a crippling uh, black depression because I think, that would not have been helpful uh, or maybe have worked for the reasons you just said, but. mm -hmm.
1: Now, during the times when you were in a depressive wave, but you had the calling to not cancel your meeting with George and to spend time with George during those waves how did it feel and how did you behave in a way where the depression didn't take the moment down for the two of you? Because that's, um, it's a hard thing to ask of someone when depression is to, you know, sort of not, not, um, infuse the air with, 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 you know, kind of that collective looming cloud. So how did you, um, how did you interact with George during those times and and what were what were the keys to figure out how to how to meet your commitments and and keep the attitude and the mindset with George in the right place?
0: I think that again, this is a a work in progress and an ongoing thing as George and I grew closer and closer. and I think that. I decided at some point to be as truthful as I could with George, but in a way that he could understand and, and, and putting my depression in context, because I was talking to a young child now, and now he's a young man. Uh, but I think that, I think a powerful aspect of depression is uh, rumination, ruminating on Oh, geez, a lot of negative things about oneself and one's world and anxieties like that and, you know, bipolars like that. And I think what was helpful uh, was that three hours I spent with George or one hour, I could acknowledge, kind of give uh, some honesty to what I was going through in a way he could understand, but not let it dominate that three hour time, because I said, I keep coming back to that principle that George needs me and uh, I'm here. And the more I would learn about him and his story, the more I'd get pulled out of my depression story that, you know, or tape in my head about, you know, how depressed I was, I'd get pulled out of that.
1: So there was sort of like a, feedback loop where you had to acknowledge how you were feeling, but then as you engage with George, how you were feeling didn't drive how the time spent with him went, especially when you're understanding his perspective and the, and the potential role you have to help his perspective.
0: Well, you know, I think too, you know, I think that's true. And George didn't care if I was depressed. You know, I think sometimes uh, people who, who um, maybe see us depressed, or if we tell them we're depressed or anxious or whatever, don't always know how to handle that, uh, even when they love us or care for us. And I think George just took it at face value. And then after I would say that to him, he'd pause. And I know he had heard me, but he'd uh, turn on a new rap song. He goes, Oh, 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 Mr. Dan, you got to listen to this. And then he'd want to go for a Big Mac, you know, uh, and uh, I said, George, you know, Don't we all. <laughs> oh, my God, you know, I gained 20 pounds since seeing meeting George, but he'd want to um, talk about, you know, at different points, girls or problems he was having. I remember one point it was really interesting. George was maybe like 12 and he's a big, strong kid. So he would get in fights sometimes because other kids would like to pick on the biggest kid. But he came into my car. I picked him up, um, you know, from school. And he said, I'm so angry. I feel like punching this girl in the face. So I said, yeah, George, I get angry sometimes too. Like so angry that I feel like punching somebody. So it's okay to be angry, you know. It's not anger is not a bad thing, but it depends what we do with it. And I thought that was important because he needed somebody to help him process his feelings, to make sense of his world. Yeah, uh, and that's what I tried my best to do. I don't think I was always. I'm always successful at it, but I I think to help him process you know him going from being a child to a young man uh and that the challenges involved with that um you know, and I think that gee, what an honor that is for me to be a witness and to what I can be to George to be helpful in in that journey um so I go to his football games, you know, I'm his biggest fan, you know, and um yeah,
1: I like, um, I like what you just talked about because much like um, some of the innovators in, in the mental health field for men try to normalize depression to you know, really communicate that you're not an outlier because you feel depression. It's something that many people feel. In that moment when George was angry and he expressed his anger, You didn't condemn him for being angry. You acknowledged and normalized the fact that anger is a natural thing. The response to anger is what we can control. And that's a really, I think uniquely teachable moment because we all get angry and we all sometimes want, you know, visualize expressing our anger in ways that are just bad. But it, it it it's about understanding that anger by itself or a negative emotion by itself isn't shameful. It's it's really whether or not you act on it and how you let the perspective settle in once you felt it. I think that was, must have been an incredibly validating thing for George to hear it that way.
0: Yeah, and you know, like any human relationships, we've had our our moments. You know, our, our uh, I remember one time. Uh, George was not putting forth an effort at school. I knew for certain he was and his teachers would call me and he had gotten a bad grade on something. I think that was one of the few times I blew up at George (laughs) and we drove around for three hours and he was crying and I, I don't think I handled it the best way I could, but I did say to him, and maybe this is a teaching moment, George, um, I'm not angry at you because you're bad. I'm angry because I care so much about you. You know, if I didn't love you so much, I wouldn't care. I wouldn't care what grades you had. I wouldn't care what you did with your anger. I, but I do care. And that's why we've been driving around for three hours talking about this. And, uh, you know, I guess you could say that's the flip side of my earlier story about teaching him to process anger, showing him maybe in some way, okay, Mr. Dan's angry, and you know he didn't get in a fight or he didn't hit me or he didn't belittle me, but anger's an emotion, and then we work through it uh, you know, and then I wasn't angry anymore and I think. I think that's important because unless we're real with one another and George and I are, um, we're just not going to reach people. You know, he, I wasn't going to reach him and he wasn't going to, you know, reach me. So, but I think that when we, you know, emotions are not bad, you know, you know, it's what we do with them. And you could say in, in a way, and I often think depression is not bad. You know, people with depression struggle so much with self-loathing or hating themselves or wishing they didn't exist or why can't I fix this depression? What have I done wrong to feel this way? You know, and uh, that doesn't do much good, really. Um, and I think that learning to live with depression, to manage it, um, is Better and also remembering that the thinking that goes on with depression, those thoughts of I'm no good or self loathing. I often have said depression's a terrible liar. You know, our brains would convince us that we're those awful things. And um, we're not. We're not. And I think to the degree we can do things, You know, therapy's one, medication's one, but I am a big believer in the power of relationships. And I think one of the worst aspects of my depression um, uh, over the years has been loneliness, you know, uh, the feeling that um, maybe other people wouldn't understand. And even people, when they tried to understand, I would frequently isolate myself, sometimes because I just felt so awful. And depression isn't only like an like a mental thing, an attitude, it's a physical thing for me, a profound weight, lack of motivation, tired.
1: It feels like your limbs weigh a hundred pounds each, doesn't it?
0: That is really true. And I think sometimes people don't understand that. about depression. So I think having positive relationships like this mentoring relationship I have with George is a way of talking back in a sense to the lies of depression. And for me, uh, some of my depression is rooted in my childhood with an alcoholic father and an unstable home and Maybe you know, George and I were are different from the outside, you know, uh, but had a lot of turmoil uh that we experienced from the inside.
1: Well, Dan, this has been a wonderful um time with you. I'm always glad to have some time with you because it comes far too infrequently but I really have followed and and relished this story about um, you and George and um, the enormous gift of time you gave him and the enormous gift of um, uh, affection and um, gratitude you, you received from him. It seemed like it was, it became a very much of a virtuous circle for lack of a better phrase. And I think that if you suffer from depression and you're doing your, your things therapeutically, following your medication regimen, you know, finding ways like mentoring or other ways that may be actually less stressful than trying to, to interact with your adult peers to get out of isolation and be part of the world is, is really healing and restorative. And that was the theme for today's podcast was the restorative um capacity that comes from helping others. And and you certainly demonstrated that. And it's a wonderful story. Thanks very much for being my guest. This has been episode 37 of Erasing the Stigma, Conversations About Mental Health in the Wellness Profession.
0: Discover how Major Lindsay in Africa can help you navigate the legal landscape at www.mlaglobal.com.